We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by regular commentator, Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And on the telephone from Kaohsiung by Southern Taiwan correspondent, Michael Smith. Thanks for having me as well. And on this evening's show, we'll be discussing the Council of Agriculture warning local governments to invalidate their ractopamine bans, the KMT holding retrocession day events, a segment from a recent roundtable ICRT hosted concerning... What can happen to Taiwan, whether Donald Trump is re-elected or Joe Biden takes over the White House? The annual LGBT Pride Parade this Saturday and a cancelled prayer morning because of it. And Kaohsiung's Wuguan Bookstore turning out the lights because it wants customers to read in the dark. But we'll begin with a contentious and unprecedented National Communications Commission administrative hearing to review the renewal of Zhongtian Television's broadcast licence. Want What Holdings conglomerate founder and chairman Tsai Yen-ming was asked to appear at the review with the broadcast watchdog saying it invited Tsai to testify due to his extensive knowledge of the company's operations and strategies. Now, Zhongtian Television News has long been faced with allegations of having ties to the Chinese government and the network has been fined over 10 million NT over the past six years for violating media regulations due to widespread complaints ranging from spreading disinformation to biased reporting. And speaking at Monday's mammoth eight-and-a-half-hour-long hearing, Tsai told the, revol- the review board that he plays no part in the news network's daily operations and only visits the station's office two or three times a year for employee-related events. Tsai said that he didn't instruct anyone on the news team how to write reports and he also dismissed charges that his company receives favourable funding from China amid allegations that it enjoys close ties with the Chinese government, saying that any subsidies that Want Want China Holdings has received from the Chinese government are available to all companies that operate in China, including those from both the United States and Japan. Needless to say, the hearing has raised some rather iry feelings among pro-Pan Blue Camp politicians and supporters, with KMT chairman Johnny Jung describing it as an attempt by the government to clamp down on critical news coverage. And on Tuesday, the KMT posted an image on Twitter depicting President Tsai Ing-wen as Mao Zedong. The text to that tweet read, The people of Taiwan deserve a non-partisan, independent and professional National Communications Commission, and we, being the KMT, stand for freedom of speech. That Twitter post was slammed by the DPP, needless to say, with DPP lawmaker Chen Ting-fei saying that it's ridiculous for the KMT to portray Tsai as Mao Zedong as the Zhongtian television broadcast licence issue has nothing to do with freedom of expression. Now, speaking to reporters on the sidelines of an event in Taoyuan, as the hearing was actually underway in Taipei, Premier Su Jung Chung warned against outsider interference in the broadcast licence review, saying the hearing is not focusing on whether the television station should be shut down, but is instead reviewing whether the licence should be changed. The Premier also defended the Commission's members, saying they are fully qualified, are vetted by the Legislative UN before they take office, and as such, they will exercise their powers independently and in accordance with the law. So, Brian, of course, Zhongtian, you know, in certain circles, it has long time had a bad rap. Uh, that's right. And so allegations that Zhongtian is involved in, uh, in Chinese disinformation efforts have been longstanding. There was a report, for example, by the Apple Daily that they have uh, that Wan Wan Group, which owns Zhongtian, has taken over two billion NTD in funding from the Chinese government. And there's a report by the Financial Times that uh, the uh, China's Taiwan Affairs Office actually has a direct say in reporting by the China Times, which is also owned by the Wan Wan Group. 
And particularly now, I think uh, criticisms are focused on Zhongtian's coverage in the last two years. For example, in last year, there were a series of reports that are very favorable to the KMT presidential candidate, Han Guoyu. Uh, in May 2019, 70% of airtime was devoted to just covering Han Guoyu. There were reports, for example, exaggerating the size of his inauguration, uh, exaggerating the size of it to make it appear as though he had more support than he actually did, claiming that an auspicious cloud had appeared above him and two other KMT mayors, and so forth. And so there's this very clear political bias on the part of Zhongtian. Um, but that being said, the science station does have to tread carefully. It does have to avoid presenting itself as though it is partic- uh, politically persecuting Zhongtian. This is an accusation that the KMT has leveraged a co- upon, and particularly because the KMT has been insistent that the DPP is conducting a green terror in the past few years against it, worse than the white terror, apparently. Uh, this is an issue in which they are actually leading very heavily on, and I think it's very visible with this, uh, with this hearing. Well, I, I see a big problem with perception, public perception. Um, it seems that there's a, a very large chunk of the population who uh, don't have a lot of faith in the NCC. Now, this perception is right or wrong, I, I can't say, but uh, many people seem to see believe that it is controlled by the ruling party, and this goes back to the Ma administration and the Tsai administration. So the NCC uh, is not trusted by a lot of people. So if uh, they do... Um, invalidate the license, it's going to be a clear weapon for the KMT to be able to use against the, the government. And some people are going to believe that, and that it might com- be completely false. The NCC may be completely independent, but um, it will be a weapon. And uh, I was watching the station not long ago, and they're already promoting the fact that uh, if they were to be shut down, they are going to uh, have a YouTube channel that would be uh, up there as well. So... It's a, it's a very complicated thing for the government to, to uh, uh, thread the needle through, and uh, Premier Sue is pretty, uh, pretty wise in his comments. But as to Brian's point about the, the coverage, um, down here, Zhongtian is not one of the, the most popular uh, channels, uh, obviously. But over the election, uh, the night of the election, actually, I was down at the uh, KMT headquarters, and there were a couple of people that I talked to who um, they, they were pretty non-phased by the result. They, uh, when Tsai won by a, a wide margin, they were you know, just like, okay, well, we, we kind of expected this. But there were some people who were weeping and just hysterical. So I waited for them to calm down a little bit and went over and talked to them. And I, in, in the most polite way I could possibly do it, I was like, did, did you not, were you not like, uh, thinking that the, this was a possibility at all? And like, no, not at all. This is uh, and then I was like, well, what, what stations do you watch, and where do you get your information from? And then all of them said only Zhongtian. So I think the biggest problem with Zhongtian <laughs> is the people who only watch that station. But if they do shut it down, uh, there will be allegations of uh, cutting into freedom of speech. So it's a super complicated issue. Of course, we talked about there the independence of the NCC, Brian, and a poll this week apparently said that 80% of people who responded to the poll didn't quite think the National Communications Commission was as independent as some might like us to believe. Yeah, and that definitely points to that institutions in Taiwan, government institutions, are not viewed as nonpartisan. They're often viewed as slanting depending on who is in power and then making their political judgments accordingly. And that's true of the judiciary, that's true of a, a, a government organ such as the NCC and so forth. Uh, the KMT, for example, has focused criticisms on that people on the uh, review board for, for Zhongtian are people with backgrounds in the anti-media monopoly movement, which erupted in 2012 against uh, Tsai Yiming's purchase of, of China Times, of uh, Zhongtian, of uh, CTV, with the view that, well, I mean, he's quite open about the fact that he was hoping to spread pro-China views in Taiwan. And so this led to a protest movement that was one of the earlier movements before the Sunflower Movement. And some people that participated were academics, including people currently in power, such as as, as politicians, such as Wang Guochang. Um, 
And so because of this, the KMT is using this to claim that there is clear political favoritism on the part of the DPP for some media outlets, that there are some, uh, it has appointed critics of Zhongtian to this commission. Um, and so that it, it will definitely leverage on this this uh, accusation. And yeah, it will actually gain traction, uh, particularly because the news environment in Taiwan is increasingly polarized. You see this in many environments across the world, but I think it's particularly true in Taiwan where there's just uh, different echo chambers now exist between people consuming pan-green versus pan-blue outlets. And so they have entirely different worldviews. Uh, they, they have alternative facts from each other. And then when this kind of thing happens, then people will, uh, will actually will actually view it as an assault on freedom of speech. You know, actually, uh, it's actually, it's so interesting because then the Times Union is actually taking uh, action, if it does take action, against an outlet that is accused of directly taking orders from the Chinese government. But if it can't do that, that points to how limited sometimes the, the government ability to regulate media outlets are in Taiwan. And of course, Michael, these are just allegations that it's taking orders from Beijing. There's been, there's been no proof given whatsoever of these allegations. Uh, yeah, it's uh, definitely allegations. And then there's other people who are asking, uh, like, okay, if you can't prove that uh, there's direct money coming in, um, is it against the constitution of, of, of the Republic of China or Taiwan? Or is it not in keeping with freedom of speech if a media magnet wants to express pro-China views? If that's how he feels, if he feels pro-China, does he not have a right to say those things. So, yes, um, they are allegations. And then other people say, well, even if he, he, he is pro-China, what's wrong with that? And of course, Michael, people can just simply change the channel. Very much so, yes. Or what I would recommend to, to people who are interested in watching the news is to watch several channels and <laughs> flip through them and get a feeling of, of what everyone is saying and uh, make a balanced uh, thought based on you know, more than one voice. I think that's very much so. Um, and it's practically a challenge, I think, because in Taiwan, it is one entire side of the political spectrum to be in favor of unification with China. And so that makes uh, regulating this kind of thing very difficult because it is it will be seen as taking action against one half of the political spectrum. And that does raise questions, uh, particularly regarding uh, freedom of speech in Taiwan. And freedom of speech is something that was hard fought for during the uh, democratic transition up until now. And so I think people do take it very seriously. Even at, at the same time, sometimes authoritarian actors will use these freedom of speeches uh, to defend themselves at this point. And of course, Michael, there was a poll this week, the same poll that talked about the NCC, that said a majority of respondents to the poll thought that they'd be unhappy to see Zhong Tian lose its license. Right. I mean, even myself, like, I, I, I'm not a fan of their station. I, I find them sometimes almost comical in the, in the coverage that, that they present. But even I sort of would, would prefer that they would stay on air because I'm one who always wants to err on the side of freedom of speech. And it is unfortunate there, that there are some people who only get their news from that. But I was heartened to, uh, in my general surveys, when I talk to people, it's not a, ma a large majority. It's actually quite a small group of people who are diehard Zhongtian only. And these are older people whose minds are already made up. So having that voice over there just because we are a free country, I'm, I, I, would, I would err on the side of that. And moving on now on the showdown between the central government and local governments regarding the pending lifting next year of a ban on the import of US pork products containing ractopamine stepped up this Wednesday with the 
Council of Agriculture, confirming that it sent reminders to local governments that they must invalidate their bans on imported pork containing the leanless enhancer before the central government allows the meat to enter the Taiwan market. Now, according to the council, it will send formal notifications to local governments that remain in non-compliance with the ban on ractopamine products is lifted on January the 1st. And Deputy Health Minister Shui Ruen said the formal notification will automatically invalidate any and all local ordinances. The statements, though, come after as a number of city and county governments are still insisting that they will continue to adhere to the local food safety regulations after the new policy takes effect. Taichung Mayor Lu Shou-yen and New Taipei Mayor Ho yo Yi say they will continue to uphold the ractopamine ban despite the warning and Tainan Mayor, who is in fact a DPP chap, says that his city will not necessarily follow the new rules on ractopamine next year. While the head of Taichung's Legal Affairs Bureau is being cited as saying that local governments are not obliged to adhere to the Council of Agriculture's authority on the matter based on constitutional interpretation number 738. And that interpretation gives local governments the right to make reasonable adjustments related to central government regulations based on the specific needs of each county and city. So the pork issue is not going away, Brian, and it's got local now. Uh, That's right, and I think it's quite interesting because then this shapes up to be a fight between uh, oftentimes KMT local governments and the central government. This has come up as an issue a few times in the past year, uh, most often regarding COVID-19 prevention measures, with local KMT mayors and so forth criticizing the administration for its actions and saying that they will not necessarily follow the uh, regulations specified by the administration. But because of, I think, uh, COVID-19 and the nature of the disease, this did not become a political flashpoint. And here, in the way that ractopamine imports have been such a sensitive issue for such a long time, I think this is an issue that actually can be leveraged on. And is also interesting, too, particularly regarding uh, the mayor in Tainan, uh, that there will possibly be splits within DPP. Tsai actually did sort of unilaterally take action regarding uh, lifting the ban. And historically, the DPP has in the past, including Tsai herself, uh, opposed actually the imports of, of, of ractum being treated meat. When the KMT is in power, this is an issue that the DPP leveraged against. And so now the DPP is in power, it's flipped around. It's one of these issues in which I think both political camps are hypocritical in that sense. Uh, but in that sense, there might actually be splits in the DPP. There are politicians that do not actually want to risk the damage to reputation from the ractopamine issue within the pan-green camp as well. And of course, Michael, you're in Kaohsiung, and Chen Chi Mai has apparently said that he'll let ractopamine pork and beef into Kaohsiung. Yeah, he's definitely going to follow the central government line. But uh, for me, this is uh, number one, another good uh, excuse to uh, consider becoming a vegetarian. Number two, um, I think we just have to be more honest and admit that this is the price of, of uh, American support and doing business with America. Um, this, people just don't want to say it, but that's, you know, we, we buy we- certain weapons and we have to let in certain things so we have the support of the U.S. And third, um, just because the governments have invalidated local bans, it doesn't mean that pork farmers in Taiwan, as I understand it, are required to give ractopamine to their pigs. So this actually creates an opportunity for certain pork manufacturers in Taiwan to produce non-ractopamine pork and and sell it. So that's my feelings on it. And Brian, do you see the local central government showdown on this continuing? I mean, and if the local government's... How is a local government actually going to ban it? Uh, that's they're going right. to have the police on the borders of every city and county. 
it'll be quite hard to enforce, and I think that will be an interesting issue. Um, particularly, yeah, I mean, introducing rack dopamine imports doesn't mean that all meat in Taiwan has to be then replaced with used, used rack and dopamine, for example. And this actually does allow for a competition between then local brands and international brands. Historically, one of the challenges when you do sign a bilateral trade agreement or just a general FTA with another country in Taiwan is that it severely affected farmers in Taiwan, but it actually maybe gives farmers a ability to compete, actually. Um, I don't know if actually local mayors will leverage on that. I just think the issue, with particularly with the KMT versus the DPP, uh, and this issue of splitting along party lines, they're more generally likely just to create this kind of false perception that the DPP is forcing dangerous meat upon everybody, and everyone is now required to eat it, even if you're a child or an infant or whatever, and claiming it's particularly dangerous for these groups, um, for younger people, for older people, whatever. But uh, uh, it is something that can become more complex as an issue as time goes on. It looks like the KMT is moving in the direction of a national referendum, for example, uh, knowing that this has been a tactic they have been able to use to attack the pan-green camp on national issues. And I think particularly food safety has always been a sensitive issue. Last time we saw it with the idea of food imports from Fukushima, uh, Fukushima-affected areas in Japan. And now I think we'll see it again in the form of ractopamine-treated meat. And I want to reiterate what Brian noted earlier, that uh, the, the hypocrisy of this, because when the shoes were on the other feet, this is, it was exactly reversed. So, um, yeah, it's, it's uh, just blatant hypocrisy. But, of course, the, the, the supermarket, hypermarket chains are going to get dragged into this. Because also X chain of supermarket imports pork. Mm. So it sells the pork here, but, of course, it can't ship the same pork to mm. there. I mean, that's, that, that seems a bit ridiculous and, and hitting the supermarket and hypermarket chains, really. Yeah, I think so. But I think also then we'll see consumer pressure on uh, hypermarket chains. And I actually think that's a, a voice we haven't really heard as much in the public discourse. How will actually uh, sellers just react to this? Uh, they're the ones that, that meat is sold from and ends up in the hands of consumers. And I think there will be pressure from consumer groups and from the general public regarding that, um, regarding the availability or the labeling of uh, ractopamine-treated meats and so forth. Obviously, Marco, they've got the, they've got a, now got a label for this meat, where they came out, of course, last month, and with big splashy design for Taiwan, <laughs> no ractopamine pork. But again, we're talking about the hypermarkets and the supermarkets. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's very difficult to uh, know for sure the dumpling that you're eating, the pork. Uh, you could claim that it's non-rectopamine or whatever, and you 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 know you'd have to do a DNA test or something to figure it out. But uh, I do think that it will uh, make Taiwan consumers a little bit more conscious of the things they're buying and pay a little bit more attention to diet and food in general. And if that's the case, then it's a positive. And of course, if you don't want to eat rectopamine pork, you simply don't buy it, and you buy another pork. I would have thought. Go veggie. Uh, well, I'm not going to go that far. <laughs> you know. Anyway, we'll have to move on again now. And the KMT opened a big old can of worms this past Sunday when it hosted a series of events, including a concert and a forum, celebrating the 75th anniversary of Retrocession Day. Retrocession Day is the day that Japanese rule of Taiwan ended on October the 25th of 1945, and the island was returned to the Republic of China. I say returned because there the controversy lies, as Taiwan independence backers claim there was never any precedent penned in international law transferring Taiwan's sovereignty to the said Republic of China. However, KMT Chairman Johnny Jung said the events were aimed at highlighting the important connection between the Republic of China and Taiwan and to remember the day that Japanese rule of Taiwan ended. And he went on to say that the KMT believes Retrocession Day remains an important holiday, despite the DPP 
DPP's attempts to, in his words, weaken its observation. The DPP, needless to say, slammed the KMT for the event, arguing that it, they could be viewed as endorsement of China's claims on Taiwan, as Beijing also held events marking the day and the same day. However, former President Ma Ying-jeou was quick to dismiss those charges, and he said that the KMT's events were not aimed at placating China's one-China principle. And writing on his Facebook page, Ma said the commemorative events had nothing to do with Beijing and that retrocession freed Taiwanese from half a century of repressive Japanese colonial rule and paved the way for today's democracy, freedom and prosperity. So, of course, Michael, retrocession day. Right. So for China, they've been trying to get on the, the bandwagon here and saying that this proves that uh, Taiwan was always a part of China. Now, they might have a little bit of, uh, of, of landing, uh, of basis to stand on if they want to say that Taiwan was at one time a part of China. But if they're trying to claim that Taiwan was a part of the People's Republic of China, that's just uh, blatant, uh, absurd. So that's one thing. Then this does pose some issues for the DPP, some uncomfortable things for the, for the independence uh, people or more green-leaning side, because it was a ROC general, Chen Yi, who did fly to Taiwan, I believe, on the orders of Douglas MacArthur, and accept the surrender of the Japanese. Now, the argument by some is that he accepted it for the Allies rather than for the Republic of China, but that's uh, another issue of debate. But the fact of the matter is that the person who accepted this was an ROC soldier and a general. And so this, this strengthens the KMT's case in general for the Republic of China and poses just some uncomfortable issues. I was surprised, actually, back in, I believe it was 2000, when they uh, uh, invalidated this as a national holiday, because it seems like such a, a fundamental issue for the KMT's claim to legitimacy at all, this, the fact that Taiwan was receded to the KMT. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a very, very divisive issue. Yeah, and the KMT has particularly been trying to promote the narrative that the DPP is engaged in quote-unquote desinization, uh, trying to remove symbols of the ROC and institutions of the ROC, and this is a way to create cultural Taiwanese independence. And the KMT, in their, as they justify it, this is the reason why that young people support the pan-green camp and not the pan-blue camp. The DPP has successfully done this, for example, through textbook changes instituted during Chen Shui-bian's uh, eight years in office. Um, I, I really question this, and particularly what's interesting, though, is that the KMT has really uh, banked on this very heavily in the present, trying to claim ROC identity as the core value of the party, something that was adapted at the uh, National Congress of the party this year. Um, and particularly regarding National Day, that, that was also another issue of contention, claiming that Tsai does not actually emphasize this holiday enough. She does not emphasize the symbols of the ROC in the way the uh, the holiday is presented uh, and, and, and the iconography for the holiday. And particularly then when it comes to Retrocession Day, there's this narrative that the DPP is trying to promote this pro-Japanese ideology among Taiwanese young people, and that this is the reason why people are not fond of the KMT. And so it's, an, it's one of those things, actually, because the DPP, it is true that they have been historically uh, more pro-Japanese than the KMT. There's a nostalgia for the Japanese colonial periods from some, uh, the view that the KMT came after and were uncivilized, and they conducted mass killings where during the Japanese period they modernized Taiwan, they educated people, and so forth. Um, and it is somewhat of a rose-scented view, view, but at the same time, it's kind of an odd view for the KMT to think that this is the reason why they have lost the support of young people, and so that they need to then re-emphasize this, this uh, anti-Japanese element. Because it is not really the case that the KMT, uh, the DPP is particularly trying to convince Taiwanese young people that the Japanese colonial period was good, or anything like that. But this is what the Deep Blues believe. And so... When Chang and someone like him that claimed that he was going to win back young people for the KMT to prevent the party's image is leaning so heavily into this issue, this is a sign that he really does need to placate the deep blues in the party, I think. 
And Michael, um, do you see the KMT maybe bringing back retrocession day as another holiday, another day off for the workforce? Uh, if they could do it, I think they would do it in a heartbeat because it's a it's a very uh, in my if I was KMT, I would definitely do so. But I, I did want to comment about the education thing. Um, the the textbooks because I have a daughter in junior high school and I also uh, teach kids from uh, various age groups and I, I I see the textbooks that uh, are in schools these days and I am a little bit concerned because. There's a huge emphasis on uh, Taiwanese identity, Aboriginal culture going back 50,000 years plus, and it's all good that this is being taught, but I'm seeing less and less of the more recent history of Taiwan. And it's just an undeniable historical fact that the KMT did come to Taiwan, they did set up base here, and it evolved from that into what we have today. And that's just, that's just a, a fact. And to, to not have people, especially young people, some of them are a little bit hazy on this. And it is possible that, that, that perhaps there is a bit of, uh, of too much swing to the other side. Almost, I'm not going to use the word indoctrination, but there's definitely a bit of a, a slant that uh, I wish would be a little bit more neutral. And of course, Brian, would the KMT decide to make retrocession day a national holiday? Do you think it would get public backing simply because it's a day off? <laughs> I wonder about that. I think so. I mean, the Tide administration did cut public holidays, and it was attacked very heavily on that issue. And so I think people would be happy to have the day off. We have uh, so many days in October, though. You'd have to. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> but would you complain? I mean, would your family complain, Michael? <laughs> uh, probably not, no. Especially but, if it was a paid uh, holiday for, for workers. But, I mean, if it's a holiday, Brian, do you, do you think the public would actually commemorate Retrocession Day or just think, oh, it's a day off? I think I just think it's a day off. <laughs> That's the funny thing, I mean. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I was a kid in Taiwan, we had uh, the, the 31st of October as well as a national holiday, Chiang Kai-shek's birthday, and, you know, very few people were, you know, lighting shrines to him or anything. It was just a day off. And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and we're going to run a segment now from a Taiwan This Week US Election Roundtable special, which are recorded live at the National Taiwan University's GIS Convention Center and featured regular commentator Ross Feingold, Albert Cho, an associate professor of political science at Taichung's Donghai University, and National Taiwan University professor of political science Huang Minhua, who discussed the ramifications for Taiwan, be it a Donald Trump re-election or a Joe Biden White House, for the next four years. And here the panel answers the thorny question of what geopolitical risks in cross-strait relations could test the will of a re-elected Trump White House or a Joe Biden White House in the coming four years. Uh, Ross, of course, talking of risks there, I mean, what do you see as being the key geopolitical risks in cross-strait relations that could test the political will of either Donald Trump for the next four years or Joe Biden for the next four years? It's a very difficult question to answer, Gavin, but I think we need to keep in mind that Taiwan is a democracy, just like the U.S. sort of kind is. We'll see what happens with this election result and whether it's disputed. Uh, but the, the will of the Taiwan people is an important uh, factor in addressing the, the issues you, you identified in your question. And uh, you say, well, what are the risks? It's, well, what does the people of Taiwan want? And, and if the people of Taiwan uh, really do want to change the constitution, uh, they want to change the country's name, they want to change the flag – uh, because the current 
name or flag or constitution don't reflect the realities of Taiwan in, in, in the 21st century, in 2020, 2021, you know, that, that's up to the people of Taiwan, uh, but that might crash against what, what China uh, will not accept. And then we're, we're back to answering the questions about U.S. assistance or Taiwan's own defense preparedness. Uh, so when you, you say, what are the big risks? Uh, well, it's what do the people of Taiwan want and what direction they want to go, what China might do in response to that, and then China's other general uh, activities, uh, whether it's the Diaoyutai, Senkaku Islands, South China Sea. And there were just the developments just in the past few weeks where the Hong Kong air traffic control denied uh, uh, permission to a Taiwan aircraft to fly to Dongsha Island. So you know, the, the geostrategic environment is, is evolving um, and it's evolving in ways that increase the danger or the risk of military conflict. And it's fair to say most of this is generated from China. They're, they're not exactly the most peaceful neighbor uh, right now. Uh, and the, those factors will continue to evolve. They'll continue to be risks. They'll continue to do military exercises. The more military exercise China does, whether in the air or at sea, then the more Taiwan has to respond, the more we'll see a U.S. response. Again, that leads to a higher or greater risk of conflict. Accidents could happen. An accident uh, between two naval aircraft or uh, sorry, two, two naval ships, two warships or aircraft between China and Taiwan could very quickly escalate into a greater conflict. Uh, economic risks as well. Uh, you know, there's been speculation that China would terminate the ECFA and what would be the implications then for uh, trade between China and Taiwan. There's discussion uh, in the past few hours because there was a threat from uh, Hu Xijin, who I'm sure is is uh, well known here in Taiwan. He's become increasingly well known around the world as uh, because of his tweets and other commentary from the Global Times, uh, threatening a, a blockade of Taiwan. Uh, so uh, the, the risks are, are lengthy as far as the number of items that are on the list, and they're probably going to evolve, as I said, to be scarier. And, and uh, I know I'm repeating a point I made earlier, but once again, it shows how important it is that the Taiwan government, the people of Taiwan, industry in Taiwan have response measures for the various uh, actions that China might take. And Albert, Okay, I, I kind of add up to more notions, uh, or maybe my observation is that <clears throat> I think Donald Trump, he really has a contribution in a sense to, to detect the real capability of China. Um, there are two notions to, to this. First of all, Chinese communists, they do have a culture of respecting the strong. I mean, they do not sympathize with people who are weak or countries who are weak. I mean, if you look back into the uh, factional fights, the history of that between communist China and also KMT, you will know that you know, Chinese communists, they'll never sympathize with, with the weak. And we have learned this in Taiwan for so many years that only those Taiwanese people or politicians or scholars who are submissive to them would be bullied by them. If you stand up against China, and China will value, value you even more, which is very ironical to me, but that's true. If the logic is right, is on the right track, then I would say Donald Trump's uh, kind of tough uh, style 
is really functioning in a sense to deter China from becoming even more stronger. And uh, we can see, especially when it comes to the cross-strait relations, whenever Donald Trump says something strong against China, and uh, he will say that, you know, uh, you know, he once received an interview uh, from Fox News, or maybe, maybe not, uh, there's a program. He talked about, I mean, he was forced to answer the question that, you know, China will know what I'm going to do if, if, if they do something. Right, I mean that was a news clip out there a while ago. I know he was forced to to answer the question, but you know whenever Donald Trump says something like that, the Chinese government governments, if you observe it closely, they don't respond it uh, respond to it very strong. I mean they always kind of soft their tongue. And there's a pattern. If you do statistics, you will find there's a pattern out there. So that really kind of addressed my concern that if Joe Biden wins the next president. If you come back to, if he comes back to the multilateral relations, or kind of force or let the China to play by, by by game, to kind of you know force China to come back to the interna international community, I wonder how much that's gonna work, because it it was the case already, and you know, but China never ceased to expand, the rising power. The, the, the all kinds of uh, uh, you know, rising behaviors on, on the China side is continuing. So I think Donald Trump, one of his uh, contributions is that he, he really pushed China to the corner and, and see how much China can, can do. And in fact, because of the past four years, I sort of see the loophole or the weakness of the Chinese governments. First of all, whoever is in the... Uh, you know, the president in the position of the president of China, whoever is in that position, he has to deal with his own faction first before Taiwan. And that can save us a lot of space and time. So personally, if Biden wins, maybe Russ, you know, many important influential people. I know you're from a Republican, but maybe you happen to know somebody from Democrats. You can tell them to continue to pick up Trump's legacy because that's not only help Taiwan, but also help Taiwan as a democracy and helps China to be a responsible stateholder. Okay, so that, that's going to be helpful to many other countries, including Japan and Korea, and in, even the United States. Professor Huang, should, should we pick up Trump's legacy or move on to a Biden legacy of the future? Um, this is a really big question. Uh, I think there are at least one. Um, Trump, not necessarily policy, but the influence that uh, if Biden wins should pick up. I mean, well, it's, it's like related to geopolitical uh, situation changing. If you actually look the West Pacific, Asia Pacific ring, from Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, Philippines, Malaysia, Indonesia, Australia, if you actually look all, you know, the popular opinion pool inside all those countries nowadays, Originally, there will be some kind of soft uh, against or very pro-China, like Malaysia, like in Indonesia. They are quite friendly to, to China. But recently, in recent two years, there are, uh, there are a lot of uh, uh, learning signs that in these countries that people also aware that U.S.-China competitions. So, I mean, strategically speaking, I think even Biden get elected. He'll definitely re-engage in, in Asia. And uh, he, he's going to hold the line in the 
and Asia Pacific Ring. But there's a problem because when the rising power like China, they are trying to uh, demonstrate they are going to surpassing the, 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 the dominant power. There, a lot of people would suspect there would be a test, strategic military tests uh, in these regions because there would be, uh, you know, very limited, but uh, somehow to show which one uh, really is the boss, at least in this region. So a lot of strategists, they are talking about the most likely spot that that kind of conflict can be happen, which is that East China Sea, Taiwan, as well as South China Sea. Because in all those waterfronts, China claims sovereignty, and China domestically actually can have a lot of legitimacy in, launch, in launching that kind of uh, mil limited military conflict, because for them, they only need limited conflict to demonstrate whether China has a say, or at least on the top over the US. So that, that, and that was signal very uh, influential, uh, you know, information to whole international, international community. And, and, then, and then what we should expect? Uh, what we should expect is that, that sh I mean, our best hope is that that won't happen in Taiwan because any limited conflict happen in Taiwan, that would be major conflict for Taiwanese, right? So that, that would be very dangerous. But what if it happened in, for example, like East China Sea, and what if it happened in South China Sea? So then it all depends on which country would be, you know, would be targeted, would be influenced. If in East China Sea, the scale won't be too large. It would be just like an encounter of a U.S. ship and China naval ship and also Japan, some kind of very limited, very mild. But what's the, you know, the, the, the scenario would be a little bit more, um, how should I put, uh, 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 severe, which is that in South China Sea, because there's an open-ended waterfront, have uh, multiple countries involved, and some very friendly to uh, China, some not, some is changing, always flip-flopping, like the uh, Philippines. Philippines flip-flopping a lot. And then, um, and then also involving with the Vietnam. So that would be very, very complicated issue if happening in South China Sea. But uh, all those uh, speculation is all about there will be a structural changes in, from strategic point of view that in the Asia Pacific ring. And that is the most likely uh, in the future if, there, if US uh, China composition escalate and uh, become very, very intense, there will be a hot spot for, for, for us to expect. So, so we, we should concern about it because that's just in our, 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 our neighboring areas. That was a brief segment from a US election roundtable special that ICRT hosted, and you can hear the event in its entirety in the special Taiwan This Week podcast, which is available from today. And going in a completely different direction to politics, well, slightly anyway, the annual LGBT Pride Parade will be taking place in Taipei tomorrow, Saturday, October the 31st, and the theme of this year's parade is Beauty My Own Way, with the Taiwan Rainbow Civil Action Association saying the event is aimed at celebrating people being true to themselves rather than conforming to society's gender expectations. Now, the parade saw some 200,000 people marching through the streets of downtown Taipei last year, but 
but organisers are admitting that this year's turnout is going to be far less as coronavirus travel restrictions have stopped many overseas groups and individuals, of course, from participating. And while it will still be a happy day for the thousands of people who will be taken to the streets in what will be one of the very few pride parades to actually be taking place this year due to the coronavirus outbreak, some people, well, they're not happy as today's annual National Prayer Breakfast was cancelled for the first time in 20 years after organisers issued a statement saying that committee members were unhappy about a recent social media posting by President Tsai Ing-wen in support of the LGBT community. Now, the prayer breakfast was supposed to take place under the theme Love Without Borders, but organisers say they sent a letter to the presidential office requesting an envoy attend the prayer meeting on Tsai's behalf because the committee did not support her stance on LGBT issues. And the presidential office says that Tsai respectfully declined to attend the breakfast meeting, noting that she does not want to see people quarrel over the matter after a majority of committee members asked the president not to attend the event. So, Brian, National Prayer Day cancelled because, well, people weren't happy with LGBT rights being cited by the president. It is pretty ironic then, that given the theme was Love Without Borders. And so I think this points to that, the long road to be walked actually for a true equality to be realized in Taiwan. Despite the legalization of gay marriage, one does see backlash against members of the LGBTQ community from, for example, church groups, among others. And church groups were particularly interesting because they were not previously organized as a force uh, against marriage equality until fairly recently. This occurred several years in the past after uh, just it looked like marriage equality was all but inevitable for being uh, passed into law. And so I think that after the passage of marriage equality, one expects to see continued resistance from such groups. And this is one case in point. And so I think I'm very curious about what the reactions then tomorrow will be uh, from the organizers of the Pride Parade, because people do questions, you know, what what now for the LGBT community once marriage equality has been realized? What is next as is an issue? And issues that I've pointed to include the fact that for adoption, uh, the person being the child being adopted needs to be the biological child of one of the couple. It's hard to have joint adoption that currently is not possible. And that for Transnational marriages, both people have to be from countries that have legalized gay marriage. And so if a Taiwanese person wants to marry a, a person from a country that has not legalized gay marriage, that just cannot happen currently. And that becomes an issue. Um, but then just that then points further to these issues that still exist in Taiwanese society. One does see uh, anti-gay groups continuing to campaign on the issue to depict society's fundamental bedrock as being eroded away by marriage equality and to try to continue to organize, for example, a attempt at a national referendum to overturn marriage equality. And so I think that this, this is what it points to, that there are still these groups out there. Yeah, well, for for starters, um, I personally don't think there should be a national prayer uh, breakfast uh, in a, a secular country because uh, it just doesn't fit uh, the the concept of of uh, <laughs> of a, a, a country that is not a a theocracy. But anyway, moving along from that, um, I'm very proud of the president for essentially boycotting this because. Religious people are allowed to have whatever views they want, and they're allowed to uh, preach them and, and follow them. But uh, if you believe in ghosts and you believe that uh, the spirits need to be appeased by setting up something, you can't require other people to do that. And this is just pretty simple logic. And the fact that uh, these groups are Christian and claim to be based on love is very, very ironic. And if they had just perhaps said a statement of, well, we do not support uh, same-sex marriage because it's against our beliefs, but we uh, love everyone and we uh, um, want to extend our love to, to everyone, they, they, they could have played this a different way and come out looking better. But no, they seem to be following the path of the American uh, fundamentalists and uh, using this as a wedge issue, and it's just really unfortunate. 
Of course, Brian, this is the first time it's been cancelled in 20 years. So obviously the organisers were fully aware of President Tsai Ing-wen's opinions on gay marriage. That's right. And so it's actually it's an odd justification then to claim that it's because of Tsai's current statement on, on gay marriage recently that this is being cancelled when this is actually a long-standing issue. And so I see these kind of church groups that are against gay marriage as working behind the scenes to build influence to try to create some kind of event like this that puts it more in the spotlight. I mean, this is a split within the church. There are church groups that are openly in support of gay marriage, particularly the Tongguang uh, Church. Uh, there are openly gay pastors and so forth in Taiwan. So this is it's just not everybody. But then then there are these very vocal groups that have managed to leverage on the issue quite effectively. And I think it also it is very deeply related to that the DPP has strong ties to the Presbyterian Church. And the Presbyterian Church is in itself split on the issue of gay marriage. So I think this, this points to splits within the pan-green camp, that there are Christians within the pan-green camp that are very opposed to gay marriage, and that for them, uh, they were actually very opposed to Tsai. They even did not want some. Some people did not want Tsai to be elected because of her support of gay marriage, for example. And that that points continues splits from the pan green camp. But also, I think then politically speaking, that also creates room for the pan blue camp to maneuver. They were much more against gay marriage. The DPP eventually fell in line on the issue after uh, enough pressure internally from the party leadership. But then the KMT this actually creates room for them to expand their influence among uh, religious groups, among sectors that have historically been pan green. And so this is a particularly interesting uh, development, I think, with deep green groups uh, that have actually been drawn closer, actually, to some pan-blue camp politicians because of this issue. So I think this this points to further developments, and this issue will become more complex as time goes on. And before we go this week, a Kaohsiung bookshop has turned its lights out and piqued the interest of CNN. And no, Uguan Books at the city's Pier 2 Art Centre is not closed. It's simply taking a different take on the environment of reading. Now, the bookstore is the brainchild of award-winning architecture and space designer Jujur Kang, who was lauded as the designer of what was called the most beautiful book store in the world when he opened the Fongshuo bookstore in Chengdu, China. Now, the store in Kaohsiung is pitch black and filled with 500 tiny spotlights, meaning that folks wanting to read a book can do so without being under the glare of the lights and other people seeing them read said book. So, Michael, of course, the elite bookstore once made the pages of CNN, and we've got another bookstore, this time in Kaohsiung, making CNN for turning the lights out. Yeah, uh, people made a big uh, thing about it being, you know, blacker, and people made jokes about, you know, reading in the dark and all of this. But as you noted, there are spotlights. So you go in, and there are lights shining on the various books for sale. And there's also, I'm not sure if this is such a good idea, there's a few candles (laughs) in the bookstore as well. So it's not pitch black in any way. And... um, it, it, it's a novel experience to, to be in, a, in such a dark space. And the, the reasons given for doing it were they wanted people to focus on the books and not the people around them or the environment and all of that. So obviously it's a gimmick. I don't think it's something that's going to be uh, the new style for the bookstores <laughs> all over the world. But it's a, it's, it's a good little um, bit of promotion for Kaohsiung and uh, hopefully for, for books in general. Of course, Brian, I mean, people do steal books. If the lights are out... <laughs> might be a bit of a problem. <laughs> That's true. So I do wonder if there's a, a scanner in the the door and just it goes off when when someone tries to steal the book and then then the people's peace and quiet and silence and while they're reading in the darkness is disrupted. But yeah, it does seem quite novel. It does seem like an interesting way to uh, change the reading experience. Uh, sometimes you have all these uh, chain bookstores now that are very fluorescent and bright, and, and I guess this is exactly the opposite. Just a bookstore without a large selection. I, I believe it only has 300 books or so, and you read in the darkness. And so uh, it, it is. It is something that will draw people to this bookstore, and I think it's particularly good for Gaoshong that there is a landmark that was featured internationally, and people are now aware of as an interesting spot to check out.
I'm Anything Mike... that makes people read more books is good. <laughs> <laughs> but, Michael, do you see it lasting, or do you think it'll be a bit of a fad? Um, considering my experience in Kaohsiung, I would have to go with it being probably a fad uh, and, and fading out after a while, because uh, that's just pretty much how things work in the city. But we'll see. Um, yeah. Anyway, that's all. We'll leave it here Here on the Taiwan This Week. This week, and I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And on the telephone from Kaohsiung by Michael Smith. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.